0: New York Times columnist Ross Douthat has spent much of his journalistic career analyzing not only American culture, but the religious dynamics underlying it. From his memorable 2008 book, Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, to a 2018 book on Pope Francis and the Future of the Catholic Church, to now his latest, The Decadent Society, How We Became Victims of Our Own Success. In this newest book, Ross argues that, quote, beneath our social media frenzy, and reality TV politics. Our deeper reality is one of drift, repetition, and dead ends. The decadent society explains what happens when a rich and powerful society ceases advancing. How the combination of wealth and technological proficiency, with economic stagflation, political stalemates, cultural exhaustion, and demographic decline, creates a strange sustainable decadence, a civilizational languor that could endure longer than we think. In short, he says, we're today stuck with half effective technology, stale invention, tired religion that hobbles along, all the while enabled from sufficient material prosperity to allow us to coast, to not get under the hood, to make the deep changes. So it was lovely of Ross in today's conversation to focus so singularly on a new paper recently released from demographer Lyman Stone. That 61-page promise and peril report linked in the show notes is breathtaking, original, and wide-ranging. In 1960, Lyman flags, 50% of American adults attended weekly worship services, whereas today, just 30% do. But the report explains American religiosity through a much wider lens. While our first settlers were highly animated by religious fervor, Americans today are actually much more religious than at the time of our country's founding when, in the 1780s, just a third of Americans were members of a religious body, and about one in five were actually in church on a given Sunday. Lyman spent three years on this exhaustive project. Modern religion surveys from large groups like Gallup and Pew have been conducted for only the last half-century or so, so he analyzes newly available compilations of local and regional newspapers and colony and state constitutions to track for religiously related words. He combs databases of baby names and birth announcements to look for biblical and other religious names. He tracks down stories of religiously inspired violence and the treatment of enslaved peoples. He uses time diaries to track individual levels of church attendance and other religious activity throughout the week. As Ross flags, it turns out the first great awakening of 1730 to 1750 led to relatively little uptick in actual church membership, but the Second Great Awakening, 40 years later, witnessed far greater membership growth. Lyman also uncovers how, in the past and in our own time, individual faith trajectory is likely to change, when it's most common for belief to be cultivated, to be undone, and to be re-embraced. Where are we today with this history in mind? The report concludes by commenting on major structural and policy changes in the last several generations, including a decrease from 77% to 52% of American adults who are married today, to decreased fertility rates and a larger administrative state, to substantial policy shifts in secondary education, which restrict parent choices when it comes to religion and schooling. For perhaps another generation or even two, Stone argues the current vector could point toward even further religious decline. And yet, that because of what religious commitment at its core is, it should never be counted out.
1: For those of us who perceive of ourselves, who think of our, our identity in terms of a religious of a religious claim, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, we are almost invariably projecting onto ourselves a deeper sense of history than belongs to, say, a nation state.
0: Let's dive in. Enjoy the conversation.
2: Lyman, we're here because you've written a terrific paper charting the ebbs and flows of American Christianity, and you found some, maybe some unsurprising things, but some pretty surprising things as well. So tell us about them.
1: It's interesting to actually have it prompted in quite that way because what I did was produce a paper about the history of American religiosity which is 90% Christianity for 90% of our history but one of the more interesting trends that I that I barely even had time to get into in the the 61 pages of the report was this rise of non-Christian religions in America because we've had a lot of changes in American religiosity over the last few centuries And I think that's actually the biggest takeaway of the report is that we have this vision of American religion that we were this hyper religious country for all of our history. And then suddenly the 1970s happened and like God died and religion is doomed. That's the history of religion in America to many people. And like some new age cults formed or something. And like that's American religion. Whereas the argument I make and that I support with a lot of data and graphs is that actually American religious history is really dynamic, that we do have this highly religious founding in the the 1600s, but then a rapid shift towards a relatively secular society around the time of the revolution, and then a resurgence of religion, and now another decline, that there's actually a, a fairly complicated story that has variations across regions, and it varies in more than just the religiosity of individuals. But how individual religiosity relates to public religion, the legal status of religious belief and religious practice really changed in in complex and, dare I say, non-linear ways over the course of our history.
2: That was a really impressive effort to emphasize the complexity and (laughs) rich detail of American religious history. And I'm going to tell you as a reader of the report that I still think there's a kind of big Picture takeaway, which you sort of just also sketched while emphasizing the complexity, right? Which is that America in the 18th century was less religious than it had been at the actual initial settlement of the US. And in fact, one of the interesting things about your data is it at least strongly implies that as a phenomenon driving actual church going, the first great awakening didn't exist. Pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. So you have eliminated the First Great Awakening from history. I have canceled the First You've Great Awakening. you canceled the First Great Awakening. <laughs> but then the subsequent Great Awakenings very much did exist. And so you have a story of basically the U.S. being awakened and periods of revivalism and so on, driving a pretty linear, again, I'm really generalizing here. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. From 1780
2: to 1960, sure, you have a reasonably steady growth. So for basically two-thirds of American history of of, you know, from if you start America, if you start America at the founding rather than at Plymouth Rock, you get a pretty linear story of a steadily more churched. Well, but America was founded
1: in 1619.
2: Right. No, that's 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 fair. That's fair. So if you start the American constitutional (laughs) history, I mean basically what I'm saying is if you were sitting here as an American in 1960 and you were looking at Lyman Stone's research up till that point, and somehow fell through a wormhole in time, but didn't include everything after 1960, you would say, basically, the US has been a place where religious entrepreneurs and revivalists and startup churches, but also traditional denominations have done a really good job of churching people, of basically taking waves of immigrants, waves of settlers, and bringing them into church communities. And this has coexisted. And this is the other part of your general trend with a sort of baseline religiosity or at least sort of respect for Christianity in the Bible that exists even among people who aren't churched. That has changed, right? I mean, to the extent that people have this crude sense of the 70s changed everything, something did change in the 60s and 70s, right?
1: Right. So what I find is that, and I think it is useful, I avoid the, the term churched and unchurched because I am trying to be sort of pan-religious, right? But yeah, for most of history, we're talking about churches. 99% of American religion for most of our history is, is Christianity. So what I find is that this sort of churched or unchurched group has huge fluctuations. That in 1780, we have a much lower share of the population affiliated with a religious organization than today, and certainly than the peak in like the 1960s. However, in the 1780s, you get these Christian leaders and moral reformers who go on the warpath talking about how godless society has become and how there's swarms of freethinkers and nothing Garyans and and all these people that today we would would just call nuns or non-religious people or secular people. But they, they have all these creative terms. And then when they get down to brass tacks and like the super pessimistic apocalypse of religion now, people give their estimates. They're like, 10% 10% of Americans are godless heathens." And you're like, that is not that high. So yeah, we have this situation where American history has periods of much lower connection to churches, much lower religious behavior. That is, these people, there's no evidence to suggest that these people were not going to church, uh, or that they were unaffiliated with the church, but they were like at home saying their Hail Marys or something. These people were genuinely unchurched for the most part, but they did have a sort of broad affiliational tie to religion. They might have thought of themselves as part of Christian society or a Christian civilization, dare I say a Christian nation in some regards. But this does change in the last 60 years. We see a pretty dramatic decline in this religious affiliation, not just in the U.S., but in virtually every Particularly Western country, a uh, Western developed country, I should say. It begins earlier in some countries and later in others. It began quite early in the Netherlands and it began quite late in Ireland. And the US is kind of in the middle. But in every country, once this trend begins, no one has hit bottom yet. Basically, when you began, how early you began is pretty much the prediction of how secular you are today the earlier this process began the more secular we are today nobody has a big difference in in trend or hitting a bottom it's tempting to lay this at the foot of cultural changes in the 1960s 1970s there are definitely political changes that occurred in that window that probably accelerated or even jump started or maybe triggered it the fact that virtually every society has experienced this at one point or another suggests that there's there's probably wider sort of civilizational or ideational factors at work here as well. There's also shared policy factors that virtually every country had a shift towards fairly explicit secularization around the same time that this trend began.
2: Right. And you spend a certain amount of time, this is one of your more provocative arguments, suggesting that basically, I'm being crude again, but basically public schools- The government did it. The government did it, right.
1: And I point to a number of examples of this. We actually have a lot of really robust academic literature showing that specific policy changes- Impact religiosity, religious behavior, religious belief, religious affiliation. We've got great studies of this from the Muslim world because that's the place where there's this transition is beginning at a time when researchers are around to look at it. We also have a couple explorations of this in historic Catholic societies, particularly France. France gives us a lot of interesting variation in policies towards religion. It's one of the few places where we have within early modern history, like state sponsored execution of priests and stuff. There's some interesting studies of France that again suggest that state policy is really influential on religious belief and ideation. We have a lot of research showing that actually education, that people want to say, well, what really happened is governments invested in education and people got more educated and higher education caused the cultural change. This turns out not to be the case, though. It turns out that higher educational attainment doesn't predict lower religiosity, particularly if That attainment occurred in religious schools, even if those religious schools were under strict curriculum standards that say required them to meet certain math and literacy goals, right? Having more years of exposure to higher learning doesn't make you less religious, which is obvious given the fact that, like, Religious people invented universities, right? This and this didn't make them less religious. In fact, you could argue a university expansion in medieval Europe may have fueled uh, this. The we could argue zealotry of the Reformation. I'm a Lutheran, so I can call it zealotry without.
2: Yeah, your your word, your word, not mine.
1: My word. Yeah. Hey, we were zealots for Christ. So, whatever the case, I think that as soon as you think about it, like the argument, well, higher education is going to make people less religious. Not if it's in a madrasa. (laughs) Even if that madrasa has a really good math curriculum, a solid history curriculum, prepares you well for like an international test standard, it's still not going to make you more secular. It's just
2: not. But American high school is.
1: Right. So what makes that is not that it's higher educational attainment, but that it's overtly secular. Even if Like, you know, people, there was a study by Pew recently that like a surprisingly large number of students report unconstitutional religious activities in their school, right? And that's like maybe 10 or 20%. But even then it's like, okay, so like once upon a time they saw a teacher read from the Bible, it's not like this school is actually like establishing religious identity as a key part of a model of the good life, right? And certainly their textbooks are not presenting that. And to the extent it's presented, it's almost certainly a contested identity, right? So I went to a public school in one of the most religious communities in America. My high school science class had a both sides presentation of the origins of human biological life. The school didn't take a really overt stance on evolution,
2: right? So I'm like textbook of like one of these places To clarify, you you mean both sides. You mean Darwin's theory of evolution and Norse mythology. Igrasadil, the tree that builds right, right. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. We are we are the tears of Yggdrasil, right. Now. And yet even there, like the most that this like really religious community could muster was that like we might allow a religious perspective to be presented as a possible option. This is not like catechesis in public schools. So yeah, I think there's a compelling argument to be made that state policy has a role.
2: And the data shows, right, that if you're looking at when kids stop, sort of fall away from religious practice and belief, there's more evidence that it happens in high school than that it happens in college, right?
1: Exactly. So by the time people go to college, they're already at the low ebb of their religiosity. The low ebb of American religiosity is somewhere between like 16 and 20, generally 18. That is once people are old enough to show up in surveys of adults, their religiosity tends to rise. That's true across generational cohorts. It's a little bit smaller effect for recent cohorts, but that's because the transition towards higher religious behavior is also associated with marriage and childbearing. Marriage and childbearing cause you to adopt more, certainly more socially conservative ideas, but also slightly more religious ones. And so as those transitions are coming later, the move towards religiosity is coming later and is smaller as people develop habits of non-religion. Whereas if we get people, when we look at children's religiosity around age 12, they're quite religious. This is like the most religious point in most people's lives. So what we see is that it's really between like age 12 and age 18 that people are secularized. It's when they are still under their parents' supervision. And really interestingly, and actually this chart didn't even make the cut for this paper, we have nice longitudinal surveys that ask children and their parents about their household religious environment. So we can look at like a parent who goes to church regularly and says religion is very important. And then we can look at the parents who also pray with their children daily versus those who don't. And then we can follow up with those children 20 or 30 years later and see how religious they are. And what we find is that household religious activities, frequency of non-church-based religious activities are extremely powerful predictors of retention. Christian children, children raised in Christian households who have a religious activity with their parents more than four times a week, have somewhere between 85 and 100% chance of remaining Christian by age 30. That is, we cannot statistically rule out the fact that the idea that there might be zero attrition among these kids, or effectively zero. Whereas if you get the same people, that is, they go to church more than monthly, and their parents say that religion is important to them, and they don't have more than every other day religious activities together, the odds that that child remains Christian are only about 60%.
0: That was one of the real surprises of this report, I thought, that sort of isolating age 12 to 18 as the time when people tend to lose their faith, and then what can be done to sort of engage and combat that in household life and family life. You talk about how school itself, public schools themselves, have become more secular and longer days also, right? and setting that in the context of Blaine and Everson, post-Everson. But for the family member who's thinking about household expressions of faith those years, was there a constructive discovery or two that you had in this work?
1: Yeah. So I, I cobbled together this graph of how many days per year does the average kid spend in public schools? It's basically just a line, a linear increase from like the earliest data to today. The kids are spending more and more time in public schools and public schools are getting more and more overtly secular. Which means the social position of overtly secular socialization is rising in children's lives at the expense of relatively more religious social settings, such as church, family, even neighborhood may be more religious than school because it doesn't have overt restrictions on the participation of of explicitly religious actors like priests or pastors. The social lives, the, the social worlds that children inhabit are really important. I don't think 12 to 18 is a key window because like, some like, evil atheist steals your children or something. First of all, I don't want to claim that atheists are evil or something. They just have a different view than a person of religion does. It's simply about the social worlds that kids inhabit, the odds that a child remains religious or that they remain non-religious. If we flip this, the same trends show up for non-religious parents, right? That retention rates for the non-religious are rising. And it's not because the arguments against religion got stronger. It's just because there are more social supports. A child's development is not about their exposure to rational arguments, but about role models. All the calculations I did on retention and social influence, you can flip them and re-identify atheist households rather than religious ones, and you get the exact same findings, right? That just exposure to role models and social environments that reinforce parental preferences increases the odds that parental preferences are recapitulated in children. Everyone brainwashes their kids. There is no neutral environment for a child. Acting like there are neutral spaces for children who desire to learn, they desire to be instructed, they desire to have role models, they are looking to pattern their life after something, acting like there's a neutral space here is absurd. So I think that is something for parents to keep in mind. Never allow yourself to believe that your child inhabits a neutral space. That doesn't mean growing up, uh, you know, like, oh, Harry Potter, can't let your kids read Harry Potter. Don't let them watch this TV show. That doesn't mean like become like separatists and escape society and live in a mountain compound. In fact, it means something in some sense, both simpler and harder. It doesn't matter how much you try and take Harry Potter out of your kids' hands. If all of their friends think that religion is just not that important then it's not that important. It doesn't matter how much you police your child's media environment, if their wider social world just doesn't reinforce the things that you're trying to reinforce as a parent. Which means it's friendships, it's school environment, we can't all afford private school for our kids. So if your kid is in a public school, I was in a public school, think about how much time they're there or whether you can put them in other environments that provide alternative role models. Teachers are not selected to be teachers because they are actually the best role models. They're selected to be teachers because they have the skill of teaching. So think about the role models that you put in your child's life.
2: I guess one way to pivot to another part of the report is talking, you know, you're talking about sort of media and culture. And one of the things that you try to do is is sort of to try and trace the ebbing of what you might call biblical culture in the U.S right over. I mean, that's one of the things that distinguishes this moment from, let's say, the American founding, right from 1780, is not how many people are in church, but it is this sort of ambient culture that affects kids, but affects everybody, too. And so you have a bunch of attempts to use data to trace basically the ways in which ambient culture has become less religious and less Christian over the last 70 years. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: I'm glad you asked. This is part of the report that I was really excited about because it's a lot of novel sort of historical approach, quantitative history uh, work, but is it, really boring to some people. I looked at a couple of different places where we can look for proof of the salience of religious ideas in society. So one is the names given to children. We can just say, okay, did they get a biblical name or did they get a name coming from the Quran or a name after a Hindu god or something like this? But biblical names and Catholic saint names are the vast majority of religious names that, that show up in America. Although, interestingly, when I duplicate my analysis in the United Kingdom, the rise in overtly Islamic names is a big trend. I find that like around the time of the founding, and I mean the late 18th century founding here, because that's when this data really begins in a form I can access it you have almost uniformity of religious baby names particularly for boys for girls it's a bit lower but you're still talking i think like 70 percent or something of, of girls 80 have have religious baby names and that's not accounting for the fact that i'm only looking at proper spellings so this is not a very literate society in some cases so like if they misspelled like maher shalal hashbaz then like i didn't catch that name. right? So misspellings, particularly for girls' names, boys tend to be named after their dads, so the odds of misspelling are lower, whereas girl names are more likely to be misspelled. We can see that there is this, there are ebbs and flows, but generally this decline in religious names, particularly after the middle of the 19th century. We can also look at religious words appearing in nonfiction published materials in America. So we can look at words like trinity, temple, God, sin. I, I just come up with this index, just this basket of words from variety of religions. Just look at the frequency of these words. How often do they come up in nonfiction material? And what I find is that they were quite common. And then there's some ebbs and flows. But really, after, say, the 1860s, 1870s, we see this pretty stark decline in religious words in nonfiction material. Then we can look at fictional material, and we can look at religious character names like priest, abbot, rabbi, pastor, indicating that we have a character appearing who is religious, which might speak to the, the place of religion in social lives. And what we see is, again, this decline in like, the middle of the 19th century. We can also look at the appearance of religious words in legal cases. We have a large database of, of legal cases in America. And again, it's the same kind of thing. We see the secularization of legal codes. In the middle of the 19th century. So what happened in the middle of the 19th century? Well, what happened is, I would argue, Blaine Amendments, and more generally, a secularization of legal systems and constitutional systems. And I trace this in a variety of constitutional features. But in the late 18th century, the American Revolution ushered in vastly more overtly secular constitutions for a variety of reasons. But the American Revolution was really a social revolution not only a political one, it's just that the social revolution occurred along the axis of religion more than, say, class inequality. And we see this intense secularization of legal forms. At that time, a very unchurched society wanted to recapitulate its unchurchedness in law. And then in the mid-19th century, we get this freak out that this group of foreign barbarians with their heathen ways are coming to America and corrupting godly society and i mean of course catholics and to a lesser extent i should say but then lutherans get lumped in as here here as well because since we believe in the real presence and we like to wear robes we are definitely catholics and then you begin to see uh, a few other groups as well face real challenges and historians identify this as nativism that it's about immigrants and there is you do also see a backlash against asians although it's also targets particularly asian religion uh, Sikh and Buddhist groups in particular, but the earliest nativist attacks are all against like Catholic religious sites. It's like convent burnings and church burnings, and then it's like ca- they like capture priests and tar and feather them and stuff. The earliest nativist documents are all sermons. They're all religious tracts. In fact, one of my ancestors, Lyman Beecher, is like the original nativist. He writes this sermon called "A Plea for the West" that's all about how well-financed catholic education is going to corrupt the minds of good protestant children and so we need to ban catholic education is what he argues and the result of this you, you can see there's there is a genetic trend here that we are, we're concerned with education's effect on children right but other than this Lyman beach a real rough guy incites nate pogroms against catholics not a great dude but the result of this they fail to get immigration restrictions actually in fact for the most part they don't even call for immigration restrictions like it doesn't even occur to most nativists what if we just banned immigration
0: you know one dynamic on that front which i thought was sort of interesting as I was reading your report including that that line from, from Lyman beecher and use of time Diaries to get at some of this and and your generous sort of inclusion of religious violence and enslaved peoples as part of the story as well that's portraying an extra deeper story on on sort of religion's role in society was just the population dynamic. I wondered in reading what you had described, how big is the country along the way? You know, we have this sense of the sort of top line and religiosity being high, that being similar to today, and there's similar population throughout. But just in looking, 1,700, there's 250,000 people in the country. 1,750, there's 1.1 million. 1,800, 5.3 million. 1,850, 23 million. 76 million people in 1900, 151 million. That level of smallness and growth and how that uh, affected things I thought was was interesting to consider in terms of percentages and the bumps between uh, tribes. Real quick on this, you have this line in describing religion's place in constitutions where you describe what you do in order to sort of isolate the place of religiosity, place of religion it's a demographer's glory, I suppose, but it boggles the mind to, to, to me as a, as a non-demographer. To develop a measure of religion's constitutional treatment over time, I classify 55 different constitutional provisions and terms across 208 current historic colonial constitutions or charters. I classify 33 different national level regimes. Later, as a result, 2,400 different constitutional provisions have been identified across states and charters and colonies and the like. And I'm thinking, my word, how does, how does this ha- happen? So I, the work involved in that as a demographer, I'm curious about.
1: I began this project more than three years ago. In fact, my grandfather's dissertation in the 1950s was charting church growth statistics from 1780 to 1860. It's a genetic thing, I guess. It's been a long time in the making, and it's involved a lot of painstaking work. I had to go through and chart literally thousands of religious denominations over time identify how many churches do they have how many ministers how many members to figure out church affiliation a lot of these findings that I produce the graph is very simple and you feel like gosh someone should have made this a long time ago but before all these documents were digitized right so there's like an online database of historic constitutions and charters so i can just do a word search Right, and I've got a couple hundred words I'm looking for, and they they tend to identify these provisions, and I can look more closely and categorize. Before these databases, this was impossible. We are learning things about the history of American religion that we didn't know before we had modern search tools, which allows us to say Americans lived in societies that had overtly religious constitutions by and large before the American Revolution. Most people were living in a place where a specific religion had a privileged legal status, other religions were restricted, they had tight morality codes. This is not just New England. In fact, some of the southern states had even stricter quasi-theocratic forms of government. The American Revolution nukes that system. And then the middle of the 19th century hits it again. And then it just keeps getting hammered until now we live in a society where most Americans live in states that I would argue have overt restrictions on religion in some form or fashion, that the government is fairly explicitly placing its thumb on the scales against religious practice in the average state.
2: Or alternatively, and and this is, I, I just want to bring our conversation around quickly to something that's happened since the paper came out, right, which is that we've passed through a period of pandemic, and we haven't passed through it, we're still in it, where the U.S. has, most places have imposed much more stringent rules on religious practice as they have on just about every form of communal gathering. But then in the last month, we've seen a wave of Black Lives Matter related protests, right, that have sort of, in effect, kind of smashed through a lot of those restrictions and created a very weird context in a lot of American cities where Bill de Blasio in New York is locking up Jewish playgrounds, even as huge marches are going forward regularly. And one thing that struck me during this, you know, this sort of question that hangs over secularization generally, is there still religious energy under secularization? And if it's not going into churches or mosques or synagogues, where is it going? And it does seem to me that in the US, what we've seen in the last few weeks has been at least a kind of suggestion that for the American secular elite, there is what we call intersectionality, wokeness, anti-racism, all of these things has a strong religious dimension. And it seems to sort of have almost claimed the kind of religious space, that it's not just a sort of, it's not just a practical thing that blue cities in the U.S. are sort of still trying to shut down local congregations while allowing these protests to go forward. It's that there is some kind of almost religious exception for these newer movements. I'm curious what you think about that dynamic.
1: So there's a current of the sort of, sociology of religion and history of religion literature that looks at what we call demand for religion, which I don't get into a lot in the report. While there's disagreement, the weight of the literature suggests that demand for religion is relatively stable. That is, even in highly secular societies, large shares of people still report, and in fact, relatively stable shares of people, report a desire for transcendence, report spiritual experiences, senses of cosmic oneness, right? These kinds of like spirituality-ish experiences. People will assign meaning to these experiences. It doesn't matter for all of time. This is not just a product of science. For all of time, large shares of humanity have asserted that these kinds of sort of cosmic mystical experiences are just the soup of your mind giving you random outputs. Mysticism has always been under attack by some segment of society. This is nothing new and yet the mystics always win in history. That is, they always end up convincing the next generation to join the cult. And I don't mean cult in like the the derogatory sense, I mean in the anthropological sense. I don't think that's going to change. I think that this sense of being part of something bigger that transcends you, that assigns meaning beyond your own life, beyond your own death, frankly, that situates you in a continuity of, let's say, saints, that sort of hagiographies your experience of suffering is fundamental to the human experience. It's not going to go away. Do you want to call that religion? I prefer not to call it religion. I think that religion has a sense of formal association with the God idea. But it is definitely spirituality. It is definitely a thing that is usually associated with religions. And I think it always morphs into one. Most of the first wave of Muslim jihadis in the 7th century were not Muslim, right? They were Christian, or they were nothing. They were just Bedouin guys who saw that the Byzantine Empire was weak. The early Byzantines didn't even recognize Islam as a foreign religion. They saw it as a Christian heresy. They continue, Byzantine theologians continue to cite people we now identify as Muslim thinkers until the ninth century as sort of engaged in one discourse. It takes a long time for Islam to become a religion. It's just a movement out of the desert. They're just heretics, right? This is what the Byzantines thought. Religions don't begin as religions. They begin as movements. They begin as a group that wasn't in power, seeing an opportunity and having a sense of its own identity and its moment, which is why things like churchliness wax and wane, which is why we have cycles, because who's on top isn't stable. Once you're on top, you use your power, and in using your power, you make enemies. Power corrupts, and it doesn't just corrupt in a moral sense, it's unstable. Hegemons don't last forever in international politics or in religious politics. The genius of American religion, of, let us say, Protestantism, and to some extent Western religiosity on the whole, has been its innovation, is, it has reinvented itself so many times. How will Western religion reinvent itself now? Will it do it within the Christian tradition or within any overtly religious tradition or not? I don't have an answer to that. I think that's kind of the big question mark at the end of this report.
0: It seems as though you make an argument at the end of your paper that schooling is in a different place than it it has been in the past, that there is a secularity to the sort of legal code, that there are a variety of things that would be smart to do. You know, We could have child allowances. We could increase a positive neutrality vision of school choice, marriage penalties that still exist. And and make zoning easier, as you said elsewhere, you sort of land there with some policy recommendations. But if we stick to something that Ross has raised in his book, The Decadent Society, and in a conversation recently with Rod Dreyer, I wonder if I could read you something that he has put in writing about the question of religious demand, as we've just been talking about it, and possible revitalization. Ross says, okay, so yes, so although I offer a lot of different ideas for how decadence might end. My assumption is that a religious revival in some institutional and not just individualized form seems likely. As for where it might come from, well, it might be that the atomization and isolation of post-religious and post-family life pushed further and further into the next generation and exacerbated by the internet will create a renewed opportunity for Christian evangelization as people feel the loss of community more palpably. Or it might be that the obvious intellectual tensions and contradictions in secularism, which are already giving us a kind of religious rebellion in the form of the great awakening, will create opportunities for the Christian synthesis to be proposed anew. Or there might be some actual pagan or pantheist synthesis waiting to emerge, or change might come from the outside. Who knows what the Chinese religious landscape will look like in 20 years, or the landscape of Europe in 50. All that said, it's easy to invent scenarios But as someone once put it, we know not the day or the hour. The timing and nature of the next religious revival is known to God alone. What do you think about religious renewal at the bottom of these declining trends?
1: I think that history is long. I think that history is not as linear as we want it to be. It doesn't always tell the story we want to squeeze on it. And so nothing lasts forever on this earth. That is to say, The dominance of organized religion doesn't last. Its absence doesn't either. For those of us who perceive of ourselves, who think of our our identity in terms of a religious claim, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, we are almost invariably projecting onto ourselves a deeper sense of history than belongs to, say, a nation state. When I say I am Christian, I am asserting a lineage, a kind of cultural patrimony that is divorced from my nationality or my language. It's divorced from these kinds of things, and it reaches back thousands of years. And in those thousands of years, it has innumerable defeats and crushing blows and embarrassments and periods where we were losing. Where defeat not only seemed inevitable, but it in fact occurred. And the same is true of of any religion. We all have our history of humiliation. And yet, here we are today with the vast majority of human beings being religious. This too shall pass. There will be a bottom. And then it will rise again. And it will rise, and then it will fall again. When? I don't know. I believe in the potential for revival. I'm recording this podcast from Hong Kong. I live in Hong Kong because my wife and I are missionaries. I am deeply committed to the idea that religious revival is possible. At the same time, I'm acutely aware of the possibility that religious revival does not mean everywhere, and it does not mean soon. There may be a long time in the wilderness, for people of any given faith, but particularly for, let's say, traditionally-minded Christians in the United States. There may be generations in the wilderness, the political, the social wilderness. There may be centuries that way. We should be looking to learn lessons in community survival from Orthodox and Coptic communities in the Near East, from Oriental Christians in India, from christians living in these liminal societies in these liminal positions within societies where they are not majorities we should be consciously adapting cultural forms conducive to preservation of the things that we believe are good beautiful and excellent and the things notably that we don't just think are good beautiful and excellent for us but that we believe are gifts to the wider world it's not just about preserving our way of life because when we reduce christianity to our way of life, or when any no religion wants to think of itself as just our way of life, every religion believes that it is in fact communicating some cosmic truth, something of, of higher benefit to humanity. Even religions that are historically associated with sort of an ethnic or national identity, like say Judaism, still position themselves as part of this good work that God or gods or a higher being are doing for, through, in, on behalf of humanity and the cosmos. So it's not about preserving our way of life. It's about the fact that we believe that there is actually something of benefit to all of humanity in this. That passing on this torch is not only good for us, is not only good for our children, but it is a labor on behalf of the species. The rest of the species might think we're crazy. But they will thank us in a thousand years.
0: If you're a political journalist who's listening to this right now and you've either covered D.C. politics and your focus on the latest twists and turns of the political process, tweets and the like, or if you've moved down from New York City recently, if you're consumed with the present day realities of American culture in Los Angeles or in Silicon Valley, Why is it important to remember that larger religious framing and story, as you've just outlined? What's valuable uh, about that?
1: I think when we focus on the, the present, we tend to think that religious identity means something less malleable than it really is. So we think, well, evangelicals think this. This is what evangelicals are like. This is what this group is like. But that can change. Who those people are, they can change in number faster than you think. Their numbers can change in gross disproportion to wider society in unusual ways through migration, changes in fertility, mortality, and conversion. And what it means to be religious can change very quickly. Being a priest of Zeus meant a very different thing in 300 AD than it did in 350 AD. Religious change happens slowly and then suddenly, it happens not at all and then it's an apocalypse. It is an uncovering, an unveiling of a new, to use a word, dispensation. We suddenly find that the religious landscape has shifted under our feet in ways we did not know. So this wider history, what it should, what it should mean if you're a political journalist or involved in the political scene, is don't be too quick to think that the things you thought you knew about religion from one group or one study or from what things were like a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago have any relevance to today. These things change in hard to perceive ways and our ability to measure them is bad. We are not good at measuring these things. There's enormous debate about even how to measure religiosity. So I would say we need to take a bit of a humble pill about what we really know about particularly how we measure religious identity but about what it signifies to society what does it mean to be an evangelical what's the political significance of that what causes people to identify as that or not how does that prime them to think about other things does it mean the same thing that it meant 10 years ago these are important questions that matter for how we interpret what's happening in society around us
0: Beautiful. Well, I think that's a very natural place to wrap. And let me thank you so much for the extensive and creative and innovative work in this report. I'll link to it, of course, in the show notes uh, along with Ross's book. Thanks for investing the time and Godspeed in your labors. Thanks very much. You have a nice day. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with the enduring questions raised by religion. Thanks for listening.